it is uh, obvious that you are wise and good and faithful and uncompromising. And that's just, it's good to be able to look to you and to trust in you that you do all things well. Um, And even as we study your law and as it reflects your character and we want to to know you rightly and to uh, even apply the law correctly in our lives, help us, uh, be merciful to us, enlighten our hearts and minds by your spirit and... um, Lord, we just, we just thank you for the blood of Christ. Uh, as we study the law, we are continually reminded that we fall short of it. And I ask God that you would um, apply the blood of Christ to us every, every time we think of our falling short. That we would think much of Jesus and all he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we talked about... Uh, uh, guns. We talked about uh, birth control last week, and it, we were all over the place. And, and obviously, learning uh, these things are very challenging, difficult questions. I'm just going to read uh, two more questions uh, from Howard, who, even though he's not been here the last couple weeks, he's been here listening on online. And um, this, these were part of his initial questions. And so I thought it, uh, it was helpful. They're not follow-up questions that he's had. Um, but just to let you know, even in our discussions, Howard and I are still talking back and forth on an individual level. And that's what you do when you start talking about the details of these laws. It, it really does require a lot of deep thoughtfulness and, and trying to figure out the particulars. So anyway, here's his question. Uh, concerning political dialogue, and I thought that was a very... Uh, it, you know, we talk about all the commands have a narrow perspective and a broad perspective. Uh, political dialogue would uh, be in the broad perspective on um, do not murder, you know, protect life. So here's this question. What are the principles from the Sixth Commandment that we need to bear in mind, and how might we cross the line? Um, let's see... I guess he says cross line. What would be the crossing the line? When the, the uh, larger catechism, 135, it, it, uh, the statement is that we are not to do anything that would tend to take away the unjust taking away of life of anyone. And then he also says, uh, or, or the, the confession says, by charitable thoughts. And that charitable thoughts is what Howard goes into when it speaks to charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing, and forgiving of injuries. Those are, that's like the list in the larger catechism, 135. And, he, and uh, so my thinking on that is you usually have a, uh, some kind of evil that you are fighting against. And then you also have the command to love your enemy. And I'm a big believer in intentions, that, they, that they're, you got to have these tensions that keep you from going one way or the other. So if you, if you have only this in mind, the reduction of evil, then uh, killing is justifiable. Um, I mean, obviously, there's some truth in that because... 
we're going to teach today, God actually wipes out the entire earth because of the evil of man, right? So there's, you can find a cause that's evil, and you can rise up and say, let's destroy the evil, right? And usually if you get on the internet and you have political dialogues, there's usually someone on one side looking at some evil, and they want you to just decry it and destroy it. And that's, that's true. On the other hand, the, this, this commandment in its broad sense brings out that you're not really supposed to destroy the life of anyone, Therefore, you should have charitable thoughts. That means loving thoughts. That means uh, desiring to see forgiveness. That means wanting to have uh, reconciliation. That means, you know, being meek and humble. And, and so I think that these do, in a perfect world, they're not intention. But in a, but in a world in which we live, they do come intention. So, and so uh, when it comes to political dialogue, at least in my thinking, I'm always... Uh, I describe myself as like a pinball. In the old pinball machines, you know, you bang over to this side, and you bang over to this side, and you don't want to fall off on the side of, oh, I don't ever have to decry evil, but you also don't want to come over to the side where uh, you just don't want to give any thought to the person who's your enemy, who's your debater, because you're called to love them, love your enemy. So uh, that also takes, uh, uh, has application in our desire to protect life and to take life. So, so we are called to protect life. That's the commandment, right? Don't murder. Uh, but there is a, a level of protecting life that actually involves taking life. I mean, that's there. But that's not always easy to discern, right? I mean, that's a difficult thing. And you do have to, just like this tension here, you have to realize that in, in the protecting of life, you are taking life. And that's a, that's a tension that I think as Christians, we need to hold both of those and not just say, okay, I'm protecting life, therefore, I don't have to care at all about taking life, i.e., the person who uh, bombs a, an abortion clinic, right? Most of us would say, ooh, that's not right, and yet they would argue we're protecting the life of the innocent, and we don't care about the ones that are taking the life. You see how that... So we do have to keep these things in tension with one another. And, and I believe that there's an area in here that does get a little fuzzy on where it actually works out. So um, he then asks, I mean, this is just summary because I really want to get into the next commandment. So I'll give you a clarification question, but we're not getting into deep discussion on this. This is just me trying to do justice to Howard's questions. In question 136 of the... Uh, larger catechism, it says that we should avoid excessive passions and distracting cares. And he says, I can certainly think of a few, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about training the mind to avoid these, and what were the divines thinking when they included these phrases? My statement first is, I have no clue ex- what the divines were thinking on those, on those uh, s- statements. I can put it in my context, um, Excessive passions uh, could be taking your anger to such an, a limit that you're losing control. It could be taking lust to such an, uh, to such an extent that you are um, forgetting truly caring for your spouse and you walk into adultery. I mean, excessive passions could mean any of those things. Also, if you just follow your passions to their nth degree without kind of tempering them, my mom used to always say, moderation. Everything in moderation, right? I mean, so I think that, uh, is it okay to eat a piece of cake? Yes. Is it, is it 
probably not right to devour a whole box of Oreo cookies. Probably not. You know, so you can see how the, the excessive passion, I think, is what they're getting at with that. But the distracting cares, I'm sure that they were speaking prophetically of the Internet. No, not. <laughs> Because if there's anything that can fill you with distracting cares, it is the internet. Uh, you will, I mean, it, the internet feeds off of something you should be concerned about at all moments. Because you're always worried that if I, if, if I, oh, I, I'd never thought of that. But now I've got to be really concerned about that. I could be killing myself because I drank water that was not correct water. And, you know, and so you have this, this distracting cares that is always... And you, you know, they're smiling a little bit, which is good. But remember, there was a day where we had to drink bottled water because it was better than the rest of the water, right? And so, anyway, you just understand that Jesus everywhere says, worrying doesn't add even a moment to your life. So the more that you can step away from distracting cares, the better. Um, in my life, this is, this is a... Uh, um, it's just the way my mind works. Um, if it, when I was building the pool house at my house, at least while I was focused, working hard, doing that, it was like the cares of the world just were gone during that time. And if I would have just been sitting, and of course a lot of that was during COVID, your mind can be racing about every care in the world, right? And just thinking, and, and it is good to try to focus our mind. It may not be doing work, but doing something that, so that you're not constantly focused on cares in your life. And some people will do this more than others. Uh-oh, so we already got it. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. But the distracting cares, how specifically does that lead us to Well, murder? I don't know that our divines were uh, scientists or medical doctors. Like you hear today that, that stress is one of the things that, <laughs> that is most able to take away life. In your, you know, it is very bad for you to just live under repeated and common, um, just ongoing stress. That, that is... I don't know if they were thinking in that terms or if they were just looking at Jesus' commands to not worry, like in Matthew 5. Uh, but uh, it's your own life. <laughs> this fits into suicide, right? So um, it fits into the fact that, that uh, destroying your own body is a part of taking life. So um, we should not want to destroy our own lives. Oh, I'm going to ask, I'm going to do what Dr. Kara says. If this is not a clarification question, we're going to cut you off. <laughs> it's um, a comment. Oh, no, no comments. Because no <laughs> I don't want to have any more cares about this right now. I want to move on to the next class. It's, it's in respect to cares because okay. there are elements in our society that push that stress and the crisis and everything else, it seems. And, and in my mind, they are essentially committing murder because they're pushing these kind of things that create these health conditions <laughs> like stress and uh, a constant worry about this or that or the other thing, the condition of the world, our country. And yeah, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this real quick again just so you can visually see this. Um, 
and we were talking about this even with the next commandment, do not commit adultery. We have to, and this is where I, I like the, the larger catechism. It's very helpful to get us to think outside of the box on all the different ways that you could possibly be breaching the sixth commandment, okay, to not murder. But we have to be careful because um, uh, there's a big difference between uh, me gossiping to Evan about something that I'm concerned about, like, you know, uh, did you see this, Evan? And, you know, this great thing that I just read, and it's telling me all about this trouble, and I tell it to Evan, and now he's worried about it. You could, you know, to say, am I murdering Evan? Because I just, in a sense, incited him to, to worry some, you know. So uh, on, a, on a strictly technical level, I can see how that's breaching the sixth commandment. But I'm a little hesitant to say, I've just murdered Evan because I've just increased his worry, right? You know, so, um, so you have the narrow definition of do not murder, and then you bring it out to the broad definition, and it's good to do that because you want to you wanna think of all the different possibilities that you can, but be careful when you're way out here that you don't treat it like you're just right here. And it sounds like Jesus does that because he tells people, if you just lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery, Right? But I don't think he's doing, he is not equating these in the heinousness. I think what he's saying, and I'll talk about this in the next commandment, he's saying this is the heart, this is the, the root of what causes this, this. And so they're the same sort of sin. So don't think just because you haven't gone to the extreme that you haven't in some sense broken it. And I think your application is correct. Some people are purposely trying to do that, and they'll have to stand before God on the judgment day, but... We just, I just think we have to be, we have to have this level of heinousness and it's a little bit further stretch from, from just going out and murdering someone. So, okay. So I don't know if I've dealt with what Howard wanted me to deal with. I do know that, that these tensions are very important and keeping the commandments always includes the norm, the heart, and the situation. And and I would uh, say that you don't understand the norm correctly if you're not learning to love in that commandment. Uh, because Jesus, or Paul tells us explicitly that, um, well, Jesus does too. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll keep the commandments. And then Paul later says, um, the whole law can be summed up in this. Love your neighbor and, and uh, love God. So... Anyway, so the, this, this command to not murder is a big one, and, and we should be thinking about all these things, and um, I, I think this is one that I always wrestle. Um, I, and I actually think that if you're in my Samuel, uh, which actually started as Danny's Samuel, and then I finished it Sunday evenings, I actually think David, uh, at early in his life, He's just all about destroy the evil, kill Goliath, take them all out. And then later on in life, after God gives him mercy with Bathsheba and he's not taken out himself, he's wrestling with trying to, how do I distribute mercy? How do I distribute the, the, the judgment of the law? And it's just, it's not always easy to figure that, that out. So, okay, no other questions because I'm moving on to the next one. You can have questions in the next one, but if we stay in the Ten Commandments way too long, if I if I don't keep us moving. Uh, yeah, there are in the back more uh, 
larger catechism on that. So if, if someone would want to pass those out to people, that would be great. Uh, we are on the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. All I've done with you <laughs> is give you the larger catechism, largely for your reflection, not that I'm just going to walk through the catechism statement, but they, they give you, remember our, this, they give you as, as far as they can get on the outskirts of a broad understanding of the commandment. And so, um, but I just want you to have those. You can take notes on them. You can scribble things. My notes will not necessarily follow the, um, the uh, larger catechism. So, but if, let's just put it this way. If you have any, as we go through the class and as we try to understand this commandment, if you have specific questions flowing from that uh, larger catechism, then uh, just like Howard did, you have an absolute right, not just a clarification right, to say, what does this mean? Because I do want us to, to, to be able to benefit from the larger catechism's uh, articulation of this commandment. Okay, I'm going to start with a Kevin DeYoung uh, quote. You can't go wrong by quoting Kevin DeYoung. Uh, not that he's perfect, uh, but, but he is very good at articulating things. So, sexual sin has been with us since the fall. It is helpful to know that even Geneva, now everybody knows, um, you may not know, but if you don't know, Geneva was the town where Calvin was pastor. Um, I think John Knox visited it for a couple years and basically said, this is as close to heaven as you can get on earth. I mean, he was very, you know, so, okay. So, sexual sin has been with us since the fall. It is helpful to know that even Geneva, one of the places where God's spirit was most active during the Reformation, consistory minutes, that means the minutes of their elders, from 1542 to 1649, or 1609, 1542 to 1609, reveal 1,572 disciplinary cases involving men and 777 involving women who were suspended for quarrels. And, and, this, and they go on, this, this was a catch-all term for marital difficulties, uh, whether it be abuse, mistreatment, uh, in addition, 636 men and 538 women were suspended for fornication and or adultery. So just to help you know that like uh, issues of adultery, sexual sin, is not something that just sprung up in the 21st century. These have been going on, um, well, from the very beginning. So adultery, in its narrow sense, in its narrow sense, adultery is... Um, Voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. That's the narrow definition of what adultery is. Don't sleep with anybody but your spouse. Uh, and this obviously has a connection to the marriage commandment because it's marriage is defined as one man, one woman in covenant relationship throughout their life. That's, that's the, uh, the definition. So, 
why, this is my first question to you, why would God limit the experience of sexual pleasure to those who are in the bond of marriage? Why would he do that? Why would God limit you in your sexual experience, the experience of sexual pleasure, why would he say you should only experience that pleasure with Erica? Why would he do that? Why not give you the fullest? You know, maybe that is the fullest. But, you know, obviously in the, in the context, is there's a sense of, oh, I want to go outside of this. And God says, no, stay within it. There you go. So that, that's, that's, you can't beat that. Good answer. Christ and the church is a picture of that. So God, when God created marriage, he's actually thinking of this relationship. Good. It's actually inconsistent with the sixth commandment. Don't murder. Okay, something wrapped up in one flesh. Okay, good. Children, it's the best place for children in the family. Good. Society, kind of, these kind of, what's that? Right, that's, I put that under health. Uh, <clears throat> but then we would argue that it's done away with now. Oh, <laughs> so if, if Christ has come, let's, free, free, free love. Um, so, okay, good, good answers. You guys are doing great. Um, unlike, unlike most other pleasures that you can experience individually or in groups, think about that. You have a feast. Can you enjoy the food with other people? You know, you uh, go outside and go on a hike and you look at the beautiful mountains you know, you can enjoy those by yourself. You don't need to have somebody else to experience that with you. You can go on a run. You can, you can uh, I mean, just about any pleasure you can think of. You can enjoy either as an individual or in a group, right? Um, God has designed sexual pleasure to be only experienced in the context of true Covenantal love. That's the context that he wants it to be experienced in. Uh, I would argue that sex is a seal of the bond of marriage. It's a seal of the bond of marriage. Um, 
It's not itself the bond, right? Just because you have sex with someone doesn't mean you're married to them. But it is the seal of that bond. Um, it actually seals it. Sometimes you would talk about, well, the marriage wasn't consummated. It means it wasn't sealed. Like they didn't ever have sex. In fact, one of the kings in uh, England uh, argued this point. I don't think it was Henry the... I don't th- was it him that did this? I, I don't know if it was or not. I, one of the kings did this, said, said, we were married, but, you know, she wasn't doing well when we first got married, and we never had sex. And so he wanted the marriage to be annulled because they never sealed it. So, um, and I would say that sex is the, is, is the two becoming one. And I think the statement one flesh can be a little bit misleading because he's not just talking about a physical union, is it? It is a seal of a union of the whole person. And when I think of the whole person, we are body and soul. So you've got a spiritual portion of your body. Some people want to make this a third category. I just consider it two. Soul, spirit is the, the, the non-physical dimension of you. And then you have the body dimension of you. And, um, and so when you become one, when you have sex, it is a joining together of the whole person, okay? And God wants that. Um, it's easy to then focus, because it's a physical pleasure, on this side of it and ignore this side of it, okay? In fact, I would argue that every experience of sex outside of a covenant commitment to be committed to that person for their entire life, it in essence must focus maybe a little bit on the soul, but it must, foc- it must take a focus more on the actual physical, physical act rather than the whole joining of two people together, okay? And in order for the two to become one, this person and this person must both be unselfish. In other words, they must be thinking of the other person, wanting to see the other person be everything that they can be, and to be, you're giving yourself to the other person. Now, it's a two-way street. You're also receiving, so it's, it's both ways. But, but I think marriage is designed to keep sex from becoming selfish. To keep, God says, okay, how can I keep people from just thinking of the physical pleasure? Think about this. When you, Art's not in this class. I can't really pick on Art today. But, but we always make this laughing joke because he, you know, Mary makes these incredible chocolate chip cookies, right? And most people know they're famous chocolate chip cookies. Well, you know, she loves to give them to other people right? <laughs> and so, and so in, in Art's mind, and we make a little, how many of those you keep them for yourself, Art? How, you know, <laughs> because when you're experiencing the, the pleasure of eating that chocolate chip cookie, you're not primarily thinking of other people. You're thinking of your pleasure, right? Well, I would argue that the pleasure of sex is probably the, one of the greatest pleasures. So it's incredibly easy to be selfish in that, in that act, right? Only think about your pleasure and not think about the other person not care about their interests, not be, you know, uh, loving them as a whole person. 
And I think God says, how can I keep two people to not keep, like, how can I deter their selfishness? All right, well, let's just make the sexual pleasure one of the best, but it only works if the two are acting unselfishly. If you act selfishly to your partner, that is a real downer in the sexual relationship over time. You will not want to still be having sexual relationships with your partner. So, so the idea is that God says, oh, I'll put you into marriage so that if the only way that you'll really experience the fullness of sexual pleasure is to be unselfish. I think that's God's wisdom in all this. Um, also, on the other side of unselfishness is being vulnerable. It's incredibly difficult because you are completely bare before another person. Good, bad, ugly, whatever. And so you're vulnerable. And I think God says it's only in a lifelong relationship where you're developing trust and you're developing friendship and you're loving the whole person over a lifetime that you can increasingly feel okay with being vulnerable and naked before another person. That's the way it's supposed to be. In all of this, you have to learn how to control your passions. You just can't let them go wild. You have to control them. They're not bad. They're good. Some people have to be taught that sexual passion is, is not bad, just like eating a chocolate chip cookie is not bad. In its right context, you should enjoy that. You know, it's a good thing. Um, going on a run is a good thing. It's a pleasure that you're experiencing. In, in my case, uh, riding roller coasters. I, you know, I love, those are good things. Those are good pleasures to enjoy. So is sex. And sometimes we need to be taught that that's a good thing um, because we've seen such bad examples of it that it's just very, very difficult. So, Questions on that so far? Just why God would actually make this command? Go ahead, Christian. It makes me. Think of what? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and I always think, <laughs> we talk about, I'm not the one that came up with this, but it stuck with me. Uh, why is it so easy to want to have sexual experience when you're dating, and then after you get married for a while, it actually takes effort and work? Well, that's exactly, think about what Satan wants. Before you get married, what does he want? He wants you to have sex, you know. After he gets married, what does he want? He wants to destroy the sexual relationship. So it just makes sense spiritually speaking, that he's going to discourage it in the right context and encourage it in the wrong context. So, um, yes, Lori? I was just wondering, in um, Genesis, after the fall, when Adam and Eve are, they realize they're naked and they're ashamed, does 
does that have anything to do with the sexual relationship at that point? It might be it might be a little broader out here on the broad, you know, we call it like meaning is a circle. It may not be the center of what they're talking about there because I think they're talking about their relationship with God primarily, but I do think it has to have some effect, some uh, application still within the circle, yes. Um, yep, being able to be with another person in complete vulnerability is challenge at that point yep yep you're this is a different you can say whatever you want ken <laughs> thank you <laughs> not whatever you want it's not completely free speech but it's close i thank you again <laughs> um i was trying to find the place where paul i believe it was paul was talking about the issue of adultery and and such things within the body of how it doesn't just affect the person that is committing the act, but it actually affects the entire body of, of Christians because you're bringing in uh, sin and you know, demonic influences into the body. Probably 1 Corinthians 6, but I'm not, you can look yeah, around there and see. Uh, it's there, definitely. That this is, this is one of the other effects of, of um, like adultery and that type of thing. <clears throat> okay, so um, let's turn to Leviticus 20. Verse 10, <clears throat> Mike Starnes, you want to read that for me? Probably read it in King James for us. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Okay, so my point in this is that um, the breach of this commandment uh, is so uh, heinous that in the um, in the law, the the kind of the civil law of how you would punish it, it was punishable by death. Okay, now this this goes again to the heinousness of certain sins. So like all sin can con condemn you before God, but there are certain sins in the Old Testament where they attach the death penalty to, and they do that to show you that this is a big deal, right? And so in this situation, both uh, uh, parties must be caught in the act. You know, it has to be clear. It's not just an accusation. Um, I, I love it in the church. Someone will be like a rumor of a rumor of a rumor. Do you know, I think so-and-so is sleeping around. I'm like, what do you want me to do with that? <laughs> I mean, what can I do with that? I mean, that rumor, can I do anything with this? I can go talk to them and see if they're willing to tell me, but I, I mean, I can't. Anyway, um, but in this, uh, if they were caught in the act, they were to be put to death. And um, So add to that the statement in Matthew 5, which we're all familiar with, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And we'll explore that a little bit more later, but just so we understand, adultery is, is on the high level of heinousness of, of sins. Um, 
can adultery be forgiven? Absolutely. In fact, I think one of the most shocking state, uh, things in Scripture is when King David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and God doesn't kill him. <laughs> he doesn't call anybody else to kill him at that time. You're like, wait a minute, why not? Uh, so um, David does experience forgiveness. Now, arguably, there are many terrible things that happen as consequences from that uh, as time goes on. But David is forgiven, and he uh, is repentant. I don't think it's like in our past. Remember, we talked about the big scarlet A that we, you know, you are an adulterer forever, right? I mean, that I don't think that that is a biblical uh, way to think of things. Uh, of course, we are in the sense that we've, uh, somewhere later in my notes, Kevin DeYoung says again, there is not one person who has ever uh, grown into adulthood anyway who has lived free from breaking this commandment on some level. And uh, so, uh, anyway, just the, this idea that um, it, it's one of those sins that occurs within you, and it can stick with you for a long time. It is hard to break free in your own heart from that attachment of, that's who I am. I am an adulterer. I am a fornicator kind of thing. Um, and I don't think the Bible uh, justifies that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Uh, bring the microphone up to Lee, please. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'm fully convinced that that list that he gave is not a complete list, but it's probably uh, came to his mind because he probably knew people that broke each one of those things, including maybe himself. And so he's, he's listing these things and saying, you were washed, you were cleansed. Uh, no past sin can keep you out of the kingdom of God. Um, it is incredible. It, 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 is, it is truly incredible. Um, and he is in 1 Corinthians 6, and I won't go into all this detail right now, but he's actually telling some people in the church, the leaders of the church, or the whole church, he's telling them there is a person who has committed adultery, and it's actually incestual, incestuous adultery, and he says you must discipline this person. You must kick them out of the church, excommunicate them, hand them over to Satan like he's adamant that you must do that. Um, and I, I'm assuming that the church does follow Paul's instructions and turn over to 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. The idea is that, that 
that was done, and that person who had committed that heinous sin has come to repentance, and the church is wrestling with what to do with them now, should we keep thinking of them as the bad, or should we think of them in a new way? And so uh, first, 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, uh, let's have Ken Caracal read, please. Let me just get this right, Ken. Is it Caraco or Caracal? Caraco. Caraco. I'm going to get that right. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. There you go. And I'm, I'm pretty confident, I know you guys have to study it yourself if to be as confident as me, but I'm pretty confident that he's referring back to the person who had committed the adulterous, incestuous relationship, and they'd put discipline on him, he's come to repentance, and now there's, he's saying, receive them back in, love them, treat them. Don't, otherwise, they could be overwhelmed. Why would they be overwhelmed? Because of the guilt of their past sin, right? And so your acceptance of them, your love of them actually helps them to actually believe that they are clean uh, in Christ. So, uh, and, and it, I would argue, uh, he does not make a statement, and this is an argument from silence, but he does not make a statement that that person could never remarry again. That's, that's a little more controversial. But uh, go ahead, Philip. this list and it's kind of like here are the things that you were but you are no longer and the same with that bringing them back in and forgiving them it's kind of like you were these things and you should be under punishment when you are these things but now that you've repented and been forgiven you're not right which which just brings the idea of remarriage into all sorts of questions uh because um on a on a strictly technical level I think I would be open, I am open, to uh, someone who's actually been the wrong party before and has come to repentance actually getting remarried again. I, I think that that's le- legitimate. That's not the position of a lot of people uh, throughout history. Um, but I think it, it's not just an immediate thing. Oh, I've been divorced, therefore I can still get remarried. I think that it's a pastor's duty, if there has been divorce, to actually try to assess, is there been true repentance? Have they tried to correct the things that led to the divorce? Because what happens, we know, is that the same problems just keep going on, and it's the next divorce and the next divorce. So if you haven't actually dealt with the sins that caused the first divorce, um, you're not really in a position to do another one. And so, uh, But I will say the very first marriage that I ever performed, uh, uh, and I, I wouldn't, uh, this is, uh, there was a woman who was Tara's, um, horse instructor, uh, and of course she says, oh, my dad just got ordained, he can marry you, you know, and these kind of things, and so anyway, but um, it was a cowboy wedding, so it was great, um, but we had her and her fiance in, and we talked it through, um, she had been divorced, you know, 15 or 20 years before, and, you know, had been single since then, and so we, you know, we just started talking through, well, why did that divorce occur, you know, are there things that you need to repent of, of that, and and I'm happy to say that her and her husband are doing great now. They're continuing to do well, and I, I think that's a, 
actually doing better than some of the first-time marriages that I've performed. So uh, anyway, that, that's not, those are just my uh, food for thought as we go through this. But certainly as a Christian, repentance and true change, uh, we need to acknowledge that that can occur. And I think sometimes we're hesitant to do that in the Christian church when it comes to this particular sin. Uh, let's turn to Matthew 5, 31 32. Uh, this is a famous teaching of Christ on divorce, and uh, so I think it's very pertinent to our question. Uh, Christian, do you have it on that black device you have back there? Okay, why don't you read that for us? It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, make her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so this is a very powerful passage. But it actually is a passage that really, when I started digging into what is it actually saying, it challenged me immensely. I don't think it's very um, hard to, to figure out what is the, what are the grounds for divorce, that Jesus admits in this passage? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, okay? And obviously, if someone has committed adultery, your spouse has committed adultery, I usually say that the, the uh, innocent party has the right to divorce, but they're not necessarily commanded to divorce. So, that it's, uh, so you still have to give it up to them because they might, there might be repentance, there's a lot of things going on. But sometimes this is such a breach of trust that the relationship has to fall apart. But then, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Deuteronomic law, there was some uh, statement that, that is given in the law that if you're going to divorce someone, you have to give them a certificate of divorce. And so that's what they're quoting to Jesus here. And, and they were using that as a means to simply divorce anytime they wanted to. Right? It was kind of like the men had, had the authority, they had the power, and they didn't like the way their wife cooked, and so they could say, I'm done with you, and, you know, move on. It was kind of a way, maybe it's kind of crass, for the men to commit serial adultery, <laughs> just going from one to the next to the next. But what is difficult in this passage for me, and what changed everything for me in this passage, is that it makes the woman commit adultery. Do you see that? Certainly that ought to create some thoughts and questions in your heart like how does it make the woman commit adultery he's not he's not confronting the woman is he in a, in many ways the woman is the passive party in this whole thing ah forced to remarry I don't find anything in Scripture that commands a woman to be remarried, but I do agree with you that there is something that's forcing the woman at that time to remarry. And this you have to get into the biblical world rather than our modern world. 
Uh, in our modern world, we usually want ladies to be self-sufficient in case they do get a divorce, they can provide for themselves. That's a, but in those days, that was not what was occurred. So it was expected. It wasn't forced from outside necessarily, but it was at least the woman was very needy and would have a very difficult time living on her own. So she was expected to get remarried. Um, And so I think Jesus is not confronting the woman here. I think he's confronting the men. He's criticizing them. He's saying, your attitude of divorce is actually, and he uses very forceful words, forcing her to commit adultery, Um, meaning you're the guilty party because of what you're doing in this. Um, So anyway, This is what started my thinking on that marriage was so important for uh, not only the woman, but for the kids and for society and everything going on that they expected that woman to get back into another marriage. And I know that in the church, we are called to care for widows and orphans. So I think that's a big part of recognizing that when someone is going through a divorce, Uh, and they've been so divorced, they have more needs than they've ever had before because of that breakup. And so the church, I think, should be very considerate to them. And I also don't think we should be in this absolutist sense of, well, sorry, I don't know if you had grounds for divorce and therefore, uh, you know, you can't ever get remarried again or that's adultery. Uh, I don't think that's Jesus' point in this passage. So questions or comments on that, you you can disagree with me if you'd like. You want to keep making a statement on that? And, and so on. So you see the uh, almost the necessity of, of something like that happening. But it was only by God's grace that they survived without this kind of stuff going mm-hmm. on. And Boaz and such. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. Your wife isn't here? <laughs> I just saw her leave. <laughs> uh, no, it's about the section where there was only clarifications. and I'm Oh, no, you can ask whatever question you want right now. Now no, I can ask a question. Yes. Uh, so you said uh, something about um, uh, committing suicide by stress. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so... How unselfish it is. All right, I'm going to talk. This is about me. Oh, no, no. (laughs) Maybe um, we need to do this privately, Christian. (laughs) No. (laughs) Go ahead. Uh, So, you know, uh, work is stressful in general. You know, you have uh, workers and they have lives and they have kids. And sometimes you try to, you know, fix their lives and help them to grow and pull them to be better people and stuff like that. But uh, so, like, I feel like, you know, if you leave a job like mine right now, like, just get rid of it and just start investing money and just take off. You've got a lot of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, I I could make a good living doing some of the things that are not as stressful, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I am needed in the community Mm -hmm. and that, uh, you know, my workers need me 
to become better people and to really see things from a different perspective. And so, and I felt that way when I was uh, putting together the medical moral clinic and the mental health program mm -hmm. for the Good Samaritan Clinic. And unfortunately, there's a you know a couple of years where you just have to really push. And then you know it comes a break after three years and stuff like that. And I've done this a couple of times in my life, and you know it just feels like you know other people might view that differently than I do. And to me, you know, it is uh, necessary at times. And but you know, in my own head, I think like, well, you know, that's not unselfish. But what is the right balance to see that and you know, not just convince yourself that, you know, you, you're actually doing something good. And, uh, and of course, there's a balance, you know, church, family, and, and so many other things that, um, anyways. No, that's an excellent question, and I'm, I hope that you'll understand that in all of these uh, trying to fit the law, you have the norm, you have the situation, you have the heart, Right? You can't think of any of these laws without thinking of all of these situations. And like in your, your situation, here's Christian as an individual. Here's Christian as he's a husband to Erica. Here's Christian as he's trying to love his kids. Here's Christian as he's trying to serve as a deacon in the church. Here's Christian as he's trying to help the community out. All of those things, right? And then you're trying to then make a decision. You see how hard? I mean, that, that situation is not just a very simple situation. And it is hard to try to think all those things through. And it could actually change over time. For instance, I think that my ability to handle stressful situations has actually decreased over my life. When I was really young, I seemed like I could just handle lots of stressful things. But I guess like the nerve endings get a little bit more frayed <laughs> as time goes on. Um, and so I have, to, I have to be more conscious of the amount of stress that I'm taking in if I'm going to be a good uh, husband to my wife or a good father to my kids, you know, taking care of Jenny with a special needs, you know, how do I regulate these things and try to keep them in balance? It's very, it's not an easy, always a clear-cut thing. Um, that's exactly right. And having some, uh, that's excellent, and having some sense of, uh, I, I like, this is a good picture because it helps you see all of them, but I think it's helpful also to see that you're working out from your highest priority to your, to your lesser priority. So um, my relationship with God, if I, if I take care of the community, but my relationship with God falls apart, I haven't done anybody any good, right? If I, if I take care of the church, but my relationship with my wife falls apart, I haven't done anybody any good. So like, you're always working ministry out, and, and um, you don't, sometimes you do get priorities out here, seem to take out a bunch of time, like starting up a business, but then you come back, and you've even told me recently, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to, more time with my family, you know, get those priorities back the way I want to get them, but it's not wrong in that period of time, because you had to get that business started, and it required what you had to do, and it created stress, maybe it took a year off your life doing all that, I don't know. Uh, I think going to West Virginia may have taken a couple years off my life over 24 years of <laughs> falling off of roofs, uh, e uh, eating asbestos in crawl spaces and whatever I've done up there. But, but I was still trying to do love, right? You're trying to, so you're trying to um, keep these in, in balance, which is just not hard. To, it's not easy to do. It's hard. And it's why it's easier, Jesus says, 
take the log out of your own eye before you start taking the speck out of somebody else's eye, right? I mean, quit just thinking, I can't believe, you know, Catherine's here after being at mission trip all week. Where's the rest of the mission team? They should have been here, you know. What's their priority to church? You know, whatever, that kind of thing. No, you don't, you don't make that judgment because you realize that they're in a situation trying to figure out what is it that God wants for me in this, in this situation. So, so it's hard. Okay. You actually got us back into the commandment on life when we're talking about adultery, but that's okay. You just snuck it in. <laughs> okay. Um, we're almost out of time here. All right, so um, we'll try to finish with this right here. How is, how is lust related to adultery? How is lust related to adultery? Can you give me a helpful analogy or a helpful definition? How are they connected? <laughs> the spark and the burning forest. That's a good. Others? Yeah, but um, but that's how lust is opposite of love. But I'm, I guess I'm just trying to ask, like, how are how is lust related to adultery? Maybe your statement is they're both selfish. They're both absent of love would be the statement. Okay. Yes. This these are thoughts. And the more you entertain these thoughts, they do lead to actions. I would say lust cancels thoughts. <laughs> oh, so it's, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's not thoughts at all. <laughs> it, that's true. You're not thinking very well when you're lusting. That's true. Um, In my mind, lust at its core is covetous, covetous, covetousness. Uh-huh. And, uh, to, which is desiring something that's not yours. Uh, sinfully, so to lust after another woman is trying to take something in your own mind that's not yours to take. Okay, so the covetousness is is kind of like likened to stealing. So lust is the covetousness, and the stealing is the action that flows from that. Uh, another way to t- talk about it is anger leads you to killing. Right? Jesus says, if you've said raka. You've committed murder in your heart. Well, of course. <laughs> I'm very thankful for the person that just said Raka and didn't actually take a gun out and kill somebody, right? They're not actually the same. But they are leading to that. And you're seeing the spark. Huh? Coming back to those uncontrolled 
passions. We're all fighting on a regular basis to try to get our passions under control. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when that's, and that's the thing. So uh, Jesus says uh, that it, this is so serious because it's in that context that he says to cut off your hand or to gouge out your eye. Now, some people have taken this literally. Um, and it, it doesn't, uh, the point is that you should take extreme measures to fight against this. No external thing will do it. You could couch out both your eyes, and you could still have mental images to lust after. Uh, so it's not the physical that, but it is telling you, don't take this sin lightly. You should fight against it. You should try to control it. You should, you should take measures as, uh, Kevin DeYoung says, he's saying that even if we don't commit the physical act of, with our sexual organs, we can still be guilty of sexual sin by our thoughts, our fantasies, our reading, our clicking, and our affections. And I just thought that's a good picture. These are all battles that we're worth fighting against. We are in a day where sexual temptation, uh, whether it be emotional or just visual, is a constant bombardment. There used to be much more protections on our society. You used to have to go kind of looking for it. It is there everywhere now. And so I do think that we are seeing um, a huge battle with the eyes and with the heart and with contentment in this area. Um, so we'll leave it right there for now. We're not done with this. We'll try to we'll have a ton more to do, but uh, a couple more pages we'll finish up next week. So... Father, thank you so much for this class. Uh, Help us to promote life. Help us to not want to take life. Help us to um, also be pure. Help us to fight against the inner desires that would consume us. And help us to know the forgiveness of Christ when we fail, but also give us grace to, uh, to conquer as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.